0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org.
1: everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild Podcast, Episode 18. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs, lectures, and community events that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, this week's episode is all about love and marriage in opera. To give you some backstory, our content today is drawn from a live event that just happened at the Cosmopolitan Club in New York City. I have the absolute pleasure of lecturing in the Opera Boot Camp class at the Cos Club during the week, and we really have a lot of fun and great discussions in that class. And I was honored to be invited as a guest speaker to one of their evening events that was a kind of pre-Valentine's Day celebration. The audio you are about to hear was drawn from a dress rehearsal for the event, so sadly there is no real audience to laugh at all of my jokes. But I had such fun putting it all together that we thought it would be a nice little tidbit to share with you, our podcast listening audience. So without any further delay, here we go. This is Love in Opera, Till Death Do Us Part, which it probably will. Hello everyone and thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you tonight as your operatic Valentine. This evening was inspired by the topic of love and marriage in opera, especially with Valentine's Day just around the corner. And the pursuit of love is really one of the greatest, most pervasive themes in the stories of humankind across all cultures and time periods. But I have to say that nowhere in art is love so perilous, yet so achingly beautiful, as it is an opera. Almost every single opera ever written involves some kind of love relationship in the plot, and some of the best and most beautiful operas often involve elaborate love triangles, struggles, and heartache as our characters traverse the tumultuous seas of passion. As for weddings, well, there are whole operas about weddings, Mozart's *Le Nozze di Figaro, for example, in which literally all the action revolves around the wedding of Susanna in Figaro, with various mistaken identities, disguises, schemes, and intrigues, making it one heck of a day for all involved. Then there's also the now obscure Il Matrimonio Segreto by Chimarosa in which the wealthy head of an Italian household tries to marry off his daughter to a wealthy suitor and all goes awry because her father doesn't know that she is already secretly married to the household secretary. This list could go on and on. Love and weddings with various degrees of success, survival, and sincerity can be found in our art form. So for the rest of our time together, we are going to take a whirlwind tour through all the stages of love and matrimony that we can find on the opera stage. Falling in love, proposals, weddings, honeymoons, marital bliss and matrimonial disasters, secret love affairs, suicides, tragic deaths, rejections, lessons learned, and yes, even some happy endings. So hold on tight, because here we go. Let's start with falling in love. Falling in love is easy in opera. Oftentimes it happens at first sight, in rapturous duets and arias. And in the same way that cat years and dog years accumulate faster than human years, Opera has its own scale that we all learn to buy into when we sit in the audience, its own scale of time. In operatic time, if it takes the soprano and the tenor more than five minutes to fall passionately in love, then it's as if they've already been dating for years, become officially in a relationship on Facebook, met the parents and families on both sides, and moved in together. But a side effect of this sometimes fast-paced operatic timing is that this five-minute eternity is often nowhere near enough time to find out something as simple as each other's names. For example, Rigoletto, or why, say, one of you might be rendered mute by the curse of an old witch, Dvorak's Rusalka, or one of you might be a serial killer, Bluebeard's Castle, or a robot, Le Conte Hoffmann, The Tales of Hoffmann, Or perhaps the fact that you are the son of a wanted gypsy, Il Trovatore. Or royalty, Barbara of Seville. Or maybe you might even be siblings. Take for example, Siegmund and Sieglinde in Wagner's Die Walküre, Or countless other minor details about one's chosen mate. But the music is so beautiful that in the end we don't even care. Some of opera's greatest musical moments are these love at first sight duets. Here is just a small taste of one of my personal favorite falling in love moments. This is Mimi and Rodolfo's love duet in Act One of Puccini's La (laughs)
0: Boheme.
1: actually a lot of marriage proposals in opera some of our operatic men have more game than others some are more romantic others are better at the whole wooing element of the proposal some of them have fantastic librettists setting them up for success while others just have really bad timing take for example Don Ottavio in mozart's don giovanni I mean, Donna Anna's father has just been murdered and now he really thinks this is the best time for him to propose marriage? Not exactly, you know, the king of timing. But here are three of my personal favorite proposal scenes and by hearing these three scenes you're going to have a little whirlwind tour through the bel canto composers Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini and these three different scenes showcase three different approaches to popping the question. (sweak)
2: ore mo de
1: Alright, so moving on to weddings. Even though love at first sight and marriage proposals abound in the operatic genre, wedding ceremonies themselves actually usually happen offstage, or sadly, not at all, because a disaster strikes that prevents any kind of happily ever after. For example, in Verdi's La Traviata, Violetta and Alfredo have the best of intentions of getting married, they've even run away together out to the country, but Alfredo's meddling father interferes, convincing Violetta to leave Alfredo for the sake of his family's reputation. This, of course, breaks poor Alfredo's heart, and even though Violetta and Alfredo reconcile before the end of the opera, they never actually make it to the altar. But despite the odds, there are a few very touching wedding ceremonies that you can attend in the Opera House. Charles Gounod just couldn't help but write a very beautiful wedding ceremony into his version of Romeo and Juliet. And even though his source material, the Shakespeare play, does not actually include a wedding ceremony scene, you have this really adorable, really touching scene in the middle of the opera. So here, let's give this scene a listen.
0: Васи, где это
1: Of course Puccini gives us a very exotic wedding scene in Madama Butterfly and this is actually all played out it's very a very long scene but this is just an excerpt of basically the moment when Butterfly and Pinkerton say I do
0: So anoninal Benjamin Franklin in Canton, good gentlemen, like handoniere Lincoln, or in all the United, America the Lord. It all got me to utter the quarters of the world are the
1: Don't even get me started on how devastating the ending is in this one. Pinkerton goes back to America, leaving Butterfly with a son that he has never met, only to return years later with an American bride, driving Butterfly to commit an honor suicide. But sad endings aside, you can even go to a double wedding at the opera. We can't forget the Act Three finale of Mozart's La Nazi di Figaro. you may or may not know is that one of the most famous wedding musical excerpts of all time actually comes from the operatic art form. The famous bridal march is originally from Wagner's Lohengrin, But not every wedding ceremony goes as smoothly or as quickly as Romeo and Juliet's or Elsa and Lohengrin's. And you know, before Julia Roberts gave us runaway bride, Verity in a way gave us runaway groom. In Il Trovatore, Manrico and Leonora are about to tie the knot when they are interrupted by the rest of Manrico's men saying that the gypsy woman has been captured and he literally leaves Leonora practically at the altar, stunned by the realization that he is actually the gypsy woman's son, that's Atsucena, and he rushes off to save his mother in the big aria di Quellapira. And then, of course, there are some marriages in opera that really don't last all that long. In another Verdi favorite, Ernani, the title character is only married to the lovely Elvira for a few moments before committing suicide. A matter of pride and honor in that plot. And poor Lucia in Donizetti's Lucia di Lamamore is so traumatized at being forced into marriage with a man that she doesn't love that she murders him in the bridal suite and then enters her own wedding party with a dress soaked in blood and hallucinating about her true love Edgardo.
2: Forging.
1: if our characters can make it to the altar and marry the person that they love, then there is room for some romantic scenes to follow. In all the opera repertory, it is impossible to beat the lush, romantic, and sheer enchantment of the wedding night scene in the Met's current production of Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, or Romeo et Juliet. Not only is the music sumptuous and lush and seductive and really downright sexy, but the Met's set design turns up the romantic volume by having our two gorgeous singers, Roberto Alagna and Anna Trebko, singing Romeo and Juliet, entering the scene on their wedding bed, which is a kind of is pulled down almost or lowered down from the top of the stage and it is enveloped in flowing fabrics. The whole back of the stage looks like they're just floating in a starry sky and as the bed descends downward you hear this beautiful dreamy music. Let's give this a listen. I know our podcast listeners can't see this, but really it is fantastic. Look it up on MetPlayer if the music that you hear now intrigues you enough. This is Romeo and Juliet by Charles Gounod, The Bridal Bed Scene. And as for honeymoons, the Metz Baroque pasticcio The Enchanted Island takes a quartet of lovers on a wild ride that does not exactly start smoothly. This is one of my favorite scenes. Let's give this a listen. <laughs> our four newlyweds get washed ashore in different places, they have spells cast on them so that they fall in love with the wrong people, and it is only after many trials and errors that they finally end up back together with the right person. So all is well that ends well in this case, but it is quite a tumultuous and crazy ride for all involved to get there. So are shipwrecks and magical spells the best we can hope for in opera? Well, I'm not going to lie, with over 400 plus years of operas at our fingertips, the outcome of these passionate love plots is pretty much a mixed bag between married bliss, lustful revenge, matrimonial disasters, and happily ever afters. And it really does seem like the tenor is always the one who gets the girl, and baritones are always the villain or being left dejected by the end of the opera. So, does anyone other than the tenor ever get the girl? Opera singers and audiences alike are always joking that the poor baritone is really the one who gets the short end of the stick in the romance department. In fact, after about around 1800, it is very rare in opera that anyone other than the tenor gets the girl. And before that, it is generally the castrati that got the girl. And perhaps this is poetic justice, given the trauma these men endured offstage. Even if you go back to the beginning of opera as an art form and look at Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, the role of Orfeo, which can be sung by either a high baritone or a tenor, is left heartbroken after descending into Hades to rescue his bride Eurydice, only to condemn her to death by disobeying the one rule he was given for successfully escorting Eurydice back to the land of the living, not looking back as he leads her out of the underworld. Crowded with doubts, Orfeo ignores this warning, looks back to ensure that she is following, and in doing so, loses her forever. So back to the baritone, it really is a devastating problem in the operatic repertoire. So much so that legendary baritone Robert Merrill actually offered a $1,000 prize to the composer who would write him, or could write him, the best one-act opera in which the baritone gets the girl. In a 1948 newspaper article, he is quoted saying, Most opera baritones are cast as either villains or disappointed lovers. They are not only deprived the chance to make love to a girl in the opera, but they have to kill somebody, get killed themselves, or step aside and let the tenor marry the girl. You can see why it is no fun being doomed to this operatic fate just because I was born a baritone. End quote. And if this is not bad enough, that Merrill actually had to pay someone to write him an opera that favors the baritone, it took two years for someone to actually do this. And since none of us have really heard of the composer or the opera that won this contest, I think it's fair to say that Merrill's efforts did not make a huge change in the baritone repertoire. Even so, I went on a mission to find an opera in which the baritone gets to experience even a slice of loving bliss that tenors find in abundance. So I started thinking of some of my favorite baritone roles, and my mind immediately went to Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. Our main character, our main male character, Onegin, may be a baritone, but by the time he realizes that he loves Tatiana, she has already married Prince Gremin, a bass. Yes, even the bass, a voice type reserved in opera for father figures and wise counselors, has made out better than Onegin at the end of this. But Onegin's final attempt to win back Tatiana doesn't go exactly as planned. Now, this is one of my all-time favorite scenes in opera, and I think it really is one of the best scenes in terms of tragic heart-wrenching baritone rejection. If I was Tatiana and Onegin sang to me like this, so desperate, so crazed with love, I can't promise that I wouldn't run away with him. So obviously we have to listen to it. This is the final scene and we've kind of sliced together uh, earlier in the scene with towards the end of the scene so that you can get a feeling for the arc of what happens musically. And I just think it's so fantastic, so dramatic, we have to give it a listen. This is the final confrontation between Onegin and Tatiana.
0: Поведал же вы, должны, я вас прошу, меня оставить, 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 как вас оставить? Нет, нет, таминут намидет вас, посюду следовать за вами. Ой, пусть движение взгляд, словит влюбленными глазами, принимать вам того. Понимать душой все ваши совершенства пред вами страстных мук от замират, в летне небесах вот блаженство, о, наедине
2: sick!
1: Another favorite baritone role of mine, the title role of Don Giovanni, also doesn't really help our cause. He might get lucky with various sopranos more times than we can count, but in the end he refuses to leave his lust-filled ways and he gets engulfed in flames and dragged into hell. So I don't really think that we can count him as having some kind of loving victory here. And if we look at other Mozart operas, we have already seen a baritone get the girl in Le Nozze di Figaro, as the role of Figaro is a baritone, and he does get Susanna. But he and Susanna loved each other from the time the curtain rises until it closes, and the man trying to steal her away is another baritone, the Count. So it's not like Figaro had to compete for her affections against a tenor. And in Cosi Fan Tutte, once again, the baritone, Ferrando, has already got the girl, and he and his friend, Guglielmo, a bass, are involved in a plot of deception and trickery against their own fiancés. So that plot doesn't count either. But going back to the Romantic era, there is Carmen by Bizet. Carmen seduces Don Jose, the tenor, and has a fling with him for a little while, but then leaves him for the bullfighting Escamillo, a baritone. But to think this mezzo-baritone love affair has any hope for the future is futile. Not because their love is not real, I think they really do love each other, but mostly because our tenor just can't mentally handle losing the girl. If only Carmen had carried with her a knife of her own, she would have avoided becoming the first onstage murder known in the operatic genre. Like secondary role baritones have a bit more luck. After all, in La Boheme by Puccini, Marcello and Musetta, despite having a tumultuous relationship throughout the opera, end up together by the end of the work. And Papageno does get his very own Papagena in Mozart's The Magic Flute. We'll come back to this one. But who else? Well, there's Zorga in Bizet's Pearl Fishers who burns down an entire town so the love of his life can run away with his best friend, the tenor Nadir. Scarpia in Puccini's famous or sorry, Scarpia, Puccini's famous villain in the 1901 hit Tosca is stabbed before he can take Tosca as his own. But she was never actually in love with him anyway, so we don't really count that as even close to a victory for the baritone. Jack Rance, another Puccini baritone role from La fanciulla del West, is hopelessly in love with Minnie and goes so far as arresting and attempting to hang Minnie's true love, the tenor Dick Johnson, but Minnie and Dick win out at the end of that one too. The list could go on and on of failed baritone attempts to get the girl, but perhaps the closest we can get to a baritone love triumph in the romantic era is in Wagner's Der fliegende Holländer. In this opera, Eric, the tenor, starts out the opera as Senta's boyfriend or fiancé, Senta being our leading lady, our soprano. But Senta ends up falling in love with and becoming betrothed to the mysterious ghost captain known as the Dutchman, who happens to be a baritone. But even here, where all seems to be swinging in the baritone's favour, we have Tragedy Strike. The Dutchman thinks Senta has been unfaithful and that any hope of the curse that has been brought upon him is being broken is lost. Senta, wanting to prove her faithfulness to Eric, not sorry, not to Eric, to the Dutchman, throws herself into the ocean and dies. This does break the curse, but their love becomes more of a redemptive one as they ascend to heaven together. And if we measure success by the character that wins the heart and the love of the soprano, even if they don't survive to enjoy it, then operas like Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci does give the baritone something of a win. Nada is our soprano, who is married to Canio, the tenor, but is actually in love with Silvio, the baritone, and having a little fling with him. Canio catches Nada and Silvio in the act, basically, passionately in love and wrapped up in each other's arms, and in revenge, Canio ends up murdering both Nada and Silvio. So our lovers do not get to live to enjoy their passion, but Silvio still stole the Soprano's heart away from the tenor. And speaking of murders in opera plots, let's just be clear that tenors do have to watch their backs sometimes, as their romantic ways get them into a fair amount of trouble. In both Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana and Puccini's Il Tabarro, the baritone character kills the tenor because the tenor is caught sleeping with the baritone's wife. Okay, so love in opera is tragic, sometimes hopelessly so. But there are some happy endings in which nobody dies. Nemarino wins Adina in the end of La Lisire d'Amore, Belmonte and Constanza are reunited at the end of Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio, Walter wins Eva at the end of Die Meistersinger by Wagner, and even Beethoven gives Leonora and Florestan a happy ending at the end of Fidelio, so that's just naming a few happy endings that I can think of. And as many of you listening can attest to, a marriage only really begins with the wedding. Building a life with someone involves many lessons learned as you experience and work through the rigors of everyday life together. And there are difficult decisions of various kinds that you encounter. For example, finances, where to live, the pursuit of jobs and careers, or how many children to have and when to have them, which is a conversation that Papageno and Papagena have as soon as they basically find each other in one of the most beloved little excerpts from Mozart's The Magic Flute. Let's give it a listen.
0: Welche Freude, Welche Freude wird das sein? Wenn die Götter uns bedenken, Wenn die Götter uns bedenken.
2: unsere liebe
0: Kinder singen, unsere, unsere liebe kleine Kinder liebe Kinderlein, liebe Kinderlein, Kinderlein,
2: Kinderlein, zu liebe kleine Kinder. Kinderlein,
0: Kinderlei. zu
2: Kinderlei, so liebe kleine Kinderlein. So Wie kann ich Papa
0: gehen? So, und kann Ja, bin eine Papa gehen. So, bin eine Papa gehen. Papa gehen. Papa gehen. Papa gehen. Papa gehen. Assistance Es ist das nicht der Gefühle. Wenn meine Mama Mama gehen,
2: Papa
1: We could go on and on with the various lessons that operas teach us about the road to a happy marriage, but we'll end with perhaps what I think is the greatest lesson of all, one that we all learn as we traverse the treacherous road of romantic relationships, how to apologize, say sorry, and move on. What better scene is there to demonstrate this than the final scene in Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro, the forgiveness scene, where the Count gets down on one knee after being caught red-handed attempting to cheat on his wife, and says to her, Countess, forgive me. And she basically says, I already have. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to episode 18 of the metropolitan opera guild podcast if you enjoyed today's episode we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in itunes or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast we'll be back with you next week but until then i wish everyone a wonderful valentine's day and a wonderful president's day i'm naomi baratera your host and thank you for listening